Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Man in the Making, with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rogas. Thank you for joining me, and over to you, Rajan. Hi, Rogas, and thank you. So today we are going to be talking uh, about and going through the uh, autobiography of Frederick Douglass. I talk about this a lot, I think. I teach about it a lot, I know that. And I reference it in my um, different lectures online and, and uh, make it mandatory reading for anyone signing up for my uh, seven levels of self-development course. It's called The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. And it's only 100 pages, but... It's one of the most powerful books I've ever read. It uh, covers some difficult things. So if you're um, not able to handle it for any reason, or if you have kids in the car as you drive, you might want to, and if they're below a certain age, you might not want to listen. Uh, it can get pretty intense at times. And with that, I think we should begin. I was born in Tuckahoe near Hillsborough and about 12 miles from Easton in Talbot County, Maryland. I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen any authentic record containing it. By far the larger part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. And it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell of his birthday. They seldom come nearer to it than planting time, harvest time, cherry time, springtime, or fall time. A want of information concerning my own was a source of unhappiness to me even during childhood. The white children could tell their ages. I could not tell why I ought to be deprived of the same privilege. I was not allowed to make any inquiries of my master concerning it. He deemed all such inquiries on the part of a slave improper and impertinent and evidence of a restless spirit. The nearest estimate I can give makes me now between 27 and 28 years of age. I come to this from hearing my master say, sometime during 1835, I was about 17 years old. So this is, of course, the autobiography of um, Frederick Douglass um, around the, the uh, he, he wrote it, as he just says, around 27 and 28 years old. He was born into slavery, and this is around the uh, beginning of the 1800s, and slavery was strong in America. So you have someone here who is now free at the age of 27 or 28, reading about what it was like to grow up in these times and how he liberated himself. And, and one of the most profound things to me about Frederick Douglass is not the fact that he 
um, liberated uh, other slaves as a famous slave abolitionist in history. But I mean, that alone is a beautiful thing and it's, it's, um, and takes immense amount of bravery to do something like that. But to me, I think one of the, one of the powerful things that stood out in my own journey was hearing how he liberated himself from ignorance and that very, uh, process, um, is uh, well documented in this autobiography in these 100 pages and so i'm, I'm the story that we're going to cover is is uh, parts of the book and um, it's not going to be all of it because that would take too long and this is not a uh, audiobook but i'm going to try to cover some of the most profound parts uh, of the book that cover uh, that side of the narrative, his own struggle and his liberation of his own mind. Um, and his other two autobiographies uh, then later cover his um, rise as an activist um, when he became uh, an adult and when he freed himself and was able to then um, join other parties uh, helping end the uh, the uh, slave, period of slavery in America. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant before I knew her as my mother. It is a common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. Frequently before the child has reached its 12th month, its mother is taken from it and hired out on some farm a considerable distance off. And the child is placed under the care of an old woman, too old for field labor. For what this separation has done, I do not know, unless it be to hinder the development of the child's affection towards its mother, and to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. This is the inevitable result. I never saw my mother to know her as such more than five, four or five times in my life. And each of these times was very short in duration. And at night she was hired by a Mr. Stewart who lived about 12 miles from my home. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her day's work. She was a field hand and a whipping is the penalty of not being in the field at sunrise unless the slave has special permission from his or her master to the contrary, a permission which they seldom get. I do not re recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep, but long before I waked, she was gone. Very little communication ever took place between us. Death soon ended what little we could have while she lived, and with it her hardships and suffering. She died when I was about seven years old on one of my master's farms near Lee's Mill. I was not allowed to be present during her illness at her death or burial. She was gone long before I knew anything about it. Never having enjoyed to any considerable extent her soothing presence, her tender and watchful care, I received the tidings of her death with much the same emotions I should have probably felt at the death of a stranger. 
I have had two masters. My first master's name was Anthony. I do not remember his first name. He was generally called Captain Anthony, a title which I presume he acquired by sailing a craft on the Chesapeake Bay. He was not considered a rich slaveholder. He owned two or three farms and about 30 slaves. He was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. He would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of the day by the most heart-rendering shrieks of an, own, of an own aunt of mine, whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip upon her naked back till she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayers from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from its bloody purpose. The louder she screamed, the harder he whipped. And where the blood ran fastest, there he whipped longest. He would whip her to make her scream and whip her to make her hush. And not until overcome by fatigue would he cease to swing the blood-clotted cowskin. I remember the first time I ever witnessed this horrible exhibition. I was quite a child, but I will remember it. I never shall forget it whilst I remember anything. It was the first of a long series of such outrages of which I was doomed to be a witness and a participant. It struck me with awful force. It was the blood-stained gate, the entrance to the hell of slavery through which I was about to pass. It was a most terrible spectacle. I wish I had, I wish I could commit to paper the feelings with which I beheld it. It was all new to me. I had never seen anything like this before. I'd always lived with my grandmother on the outskirts of the plantation where she was put to raise the children of the younger women. I hadn't therefore been until now out of the way of the bloody scenes that often occurred on the plantation. So that first chapter is basically him explaining that when you're born into slavery from slaves, um, you're kind of, you're kept apart from everything, right? You need to grow up a bit uh, but to, until you become a functioning um, adolescent, until you, you're put to work. So he uh, explains that as his first sort of uh, introduction to life that he was walking into as he, every day as he grew older. There were no beds given the slaves, unless one coarse blanket be considered such, and none but the men and women had these. This, however, is not considered a very great privation. They find less difficulty from the want of beds than from the want of time to sleep. For when their day's work in the field is done, the most of them have their washing, mending, and cooking to do. And having few or none of the ordinary facilities for doing either of these things, very many of their sleeping hours are consumed in preparing for the field the coming day. And when this is done, old and young, male and female, married and single, drop down side by side on one common bed, the cold, damp floor, each covering himself or herself with their miserable blankets. And here they sleep till they are summoned to the field by the driver's horn. At the sound of this, all must rise and be off to the field. 
there must be no halting. Everyone must be at his or her post. And woe betides them who hear not this morning summons to the field. For if they are not awakened by the sense of hearing, they are by the sense of feeling. No age nor sex finds any favor. Mr. Severe, the overseer, used to stand by the door of the quarter, armed with a large hickory stick and a heavy cowskin, ready to whip any one who was so unfortunate as to not hear or from any other cause was prevented from being ready to start for the field at the sound of the horn. So he goes on to explain as he um, became of age to start working, um, possibly around six uh, set or seven, he went to another plantation. The home plantation of Colonel Lloyd wore the appearance of a country village. All the mechanical operations for all the farms were performed here. The shoemaking and mending, the blacksmithing, cart riding, coopering, weaving, and grain grinding were all performed by the slaves on the home plantation. The whole place wore a business-like aspect very unlike the neighboring farms. The number of houses, too, considered to give it advantage over the neighboring farms. It was called by the slaves the great house farm. Few privileges were esteemed higher by the slaves of the out farms than that of being selected to do errands at the great house farm. It was associated in their minds with greatness. So what he starts to explain is that he ends up in a pretty good place uh, for a slave. And unfortunately, his life sees him going back and forth to different uh, plantations. And uh, he explains in great detail the differences. The slaves selected to go to the great house farm for the monthly allowance for themselves and their fellow slaves were peculiarly, peculiarly enthusiastic. While on their way, they would make the dense old woods for miles around reverberate with their wild songs, revealing at once the highest joy and the deepest sadness. They would compose and sing as they went along, consulting neither time nor tune. The thought that came up came out, if not in the world, word, in, in the sound and as frequently in the one as in the other. They would sometimes sing the most pathetic sentiment in the most rapturous tone, and the most rapturous sentiment in the most pathetic tone. And to all of their great songs, they would manage to weave something of the great house farm, especially would they do this when leaving home. I did not, when a slave, understand the deep meaning of those rude and apparently incoherent songs. I was myself within the circle, so that I neither saw nor heard as those without might see and hear. They told a tale of woe which was then altogether beyond my feeble comprehension. They were tones loud, long, and deep. They breathed the prayer and complaint of souls boiling over with the bitterest anguish. Every tone was a testimony against slavery and a prayer to God for deliverance from chains. The hearing of those wild notes always depressed my spirit and filled me with ineffable sadness. I have frequently found myself in tears while hearing them. 
The mere recurrence to those songs even now afflicts me. And while I am writing these lines, an expression of feeling has already found its way down my cheek. To those songs, I trace my first glimmering conception of the dehumanizing character of slavery. I can never get rid of that conception. Those songs still follow me to deepen my hatred of slavery and quicken my sympathies for my brethren in bonds. If anyone wishes to be impressed with the soul-killing effects of slavery, let him go to Colonel Lloyd's plantation and on allowance day, place himself in the deep pine woods and there let him in silence analyze the sounds that shall pass through the chambers of his soul. And if he is not thus impressed, it will only be because there is no flesh in his obdurate heart. Slaves sing most when they are most unhappy. The songs of the slave represent the sorrows of his heart and is he, and he is relived by them only as an aching heart is relived by its tears. At least such is my experience. I have often sung to drown my sorrow, but seldom to express my happiness. Crying for joy and singing for joy were alike uncommon to me while in the jaws of slavery. The singing of a man cast away upon a desolate island might be as appropriately considered as evidence of contentment and happiness as the singing of the slave. The songs of the one and of the other are prompted by the same emotion. So I think it's important to note here that Frederick Douglass is basically outlining um, some of the history of, of uh, the profundity of, of where, um, where blacks took music. Um, slaves uh, created um, blues, basically, and, and, and famous blues music came out of the pain and sorrow of slaves. And blues then evolved into rock and roll. And uh, it was taken then uh, from that history. So I'm not sure if, if, if people are aware of that, but um, that is something that should be um, kept in mind when listening to music. I was seldom whipped by my old master and suffered little from anything else than hunger and cold. I suffered much from hunger, but much more from cold. In hottest summer and coldest winter, I was kept almost naked. No shoes, no stockings, no jacket, no trousers, nothing on but a coarse toe linen shirt reaching only to my knees. I had no bed. I must have perished with cold, but that the coldest nights I used to steal a bag which was used for carrying corn to the mill. I would crawl into this bag and there sleep on the cold, damp clay floor with my head in and feet out. My feet have been so cracked with the frost that the pen with which I am writing might be laid in the gashes. And that condition lasted for uh, about eight or nine years. 
I may be deemed superstitious and even egotistical in regarding this event as a special interposition of divine providence in my favor, but I should be false to the earliest sentiments of my soul if I suppress the opinion. I prefer to be true to myself, even at the hazard of incurring the ridicule of others, rather than to be false and incur my own abhorrence. From my earliest recollection, I date the entertainment of a deep conviction that slavery would not always be able to hold me within its foul embrace. And in the darkest hours of my career in slavery, this living word of faith and spirit of hope departed not from me, but remained like ministering angels to cheer me through the gloom. This good spirit was from God, and to him I offer thanksgiving and praise. And so that's how he ends uh, the fourth chapter. Um, and so even after uh, growing up into slavery um, and basically growing up dumb, as, as he explains, as how, that's how s- slaves are kept, he had an uncanny uh, feeling that he would uh, be free one day and that's expressed later in the book and we'll go over that. And when he explains uh, his first attempts of uh, escaping, he goes on into the next chapter to uh, explain that he uh, got a little older. I think we're nearing young adult, um, 10 to 12, I don't think he's a teenager quite yet, but he has a stroke of luck and is moved from the great farmhouse um, where uh, work is, um, a field work is the primary goal to the city. And um, he now explains what it is like to Uh, move to the city and be privileged almost and work inside of uh, a wealthy estate. Very soon after I went to live with Mr. and Mrs. Ald, she very kindly commenced to teach me the ABCs. And after I had learned this, she assisted me in learning to spell words of three or four letters. Just at this point of my progress, Mr. Ald found out what was going on and at once forbade Mrs. Ald to instruct me further, telling her, among other things, that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read. To use his own words, further he said, if you give a nigger an inch, he will take an L. And so back then that was L was the... uh, I'm guessing if you give an inch, he'll take a mile. And L must have been their word for that. He continued to quote his master. A nigger should not, a nigger should know nothing but to obey his master, to do as he is told to do. Learning would spoil the best in the world. I'm sorry. Learning would spoil the best nigger in the world now, said he. If you teach that nigger how to read, there would be no keeping him. It would be forever unfit him to be a slave. 
he would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master. As to himself, it could do him no good, but a great deal of harm. It would make him discontented and unhappy. Frederick Douglass now goes on and ends the quote and begins to speak from his own perspective. These words sank deep into my heart, stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering and called into existence an entirely new train of thought. It was a new and special revelation, explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled, but struggled in vain. I now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty, to wit, the white man's power to enslave the black man. It was a grand achievement and I prized it highly. From that moment, I understood the pathway from slavery to freedom. It was just what I wanted and I got it at a time when I least expected it. Whilst I was saddened by the thought of losing the aid of my kind mistress, I was gladdened by the invaluable instruction which, by the merest accident, I had gained from my master. Though conscious of the difficulty of learning without a teacher, I set out with high hope and a fixed purpose, at whatever cost of trouble, to learn how to read. The very decided manner with which he spoke and strove to impress his wife with the evil consequences of giving me instruction served to convince me that he was deeply sensible of the truths he was uttering. It gave me the best assurance that I might rely with the utmost confidence on the results which, he said, would flow from teaching me to read. What he most dreaded, I most desired. What he most loved, I most hated. That which to him was a great evil, to be carefully shunned, was to me a great good to be diligently sought. In the argument which he so warmly urged against my learning to read only served to inspire me with a desire and determination to learn. In learning to read, I, almost, I owe almost as much to the bitter opposition of my master as to the kindly aid of my mistress. I acknowledge the benefit of both. So now, this is it. This is the uh, spark in this new city, home, and estate that he's working for. Um, right at the age where he's able to um, critically think about his his lot in life, and it's at this point that, um, it, which is why it's unusual that he was kind of moved from uh, the, a, a farm to a city and that kind of opened um, this, this doorway into education. And it's that door to education that was kept closed for slaves and which kept them dumb and ignorant and, and not knowing you know, how to read or write and, and speak well. And that was the moment where his, he overheard his master telling his wife, good God, don't teach this boy how to read because he won't know what to do with the information that you give him. And in fact, he, he knew exactly uh, what that meant. And that meant becoming 
becoming free and knowing that he could be free one day. He explains um, in the next chapter, living in a uh, another city estate for a wealthy family. I lived in Master Hugh's family about seven years. During this time, I succeeded in learning to read and write. In accomplishing this, in accomplishing this, I was compelled to resort to various stratagems. I had no regular teacher. My mistress, who had kindly commenced to instruct me, had, in compliance with the advice and direction of her husband, not only ceased to instruct, but had set her face against my being instructed by anyone else. It is due, however, to my mistress to say of her that she did not adopt this course of treatment immediately. She at first lacked the depravity indispensable to shutting me up in mental darkness. It was at least necessary for her to have some training in the exercise of irresponsible power to make her equal to the task of treating me as though I were a brute. My mistress was, as I have said, a kind and, and tender-hearted woman. And in the simplicity of her soul, she commenced, when I first went to live with her, to treat me as she supposed one human being ought to treat another. In entering upon the duties of a slaveholder, she did not seem to perceive that I sustained to her the relation of a mere chattel, and that for her to treat me as a human being was not only wrong, but dangerous. Slavery proved as injurious to her as it did to me. When I went there, she was a pious, warm, and tender-hearted woman. There was no sorrow or suffering for which she had not a tear. She had bread for the hungry, clothes for the naked, and comfort for every mourner that came within her reach. Slavery soon proved its ability to divest her of these heavenly qualities. Under its influence, the tender heart became stone and the lamb-like disposition gave way to one of tiger-like fierceness. The first step in her downward course was in her ceasing to instruct me. She now commenced to practice her husband's precepts. She finally became even more violent in her opposition than her husband himself. She was not satisfied with simply doing as well as he had commended, commanded. She seemed anxious to do better. Nothing seemed to make her more angry than to see me with a newspaper. She seemed to think that here lay the danger. I have had her rush at me with a face made all up of fury and snatch from me a newspaper in a manner that fully revealed her apprehension. She was an apt woman, and a little experience soon demonstrated to her satisfaction that education and slavery were incompatible with each other. From this time, I was most narrowly watched. If I was in a separate room any considerable length of time, I was sure to be suspected of having a book and was at once called to give an account of myself. All this, however, was too late. The first step had been taken. Mistress, in teaching me the alphabet, had given me the inch, and no precaution could prevent me from taking the L. The plan which I adopted and the one by which I was most successful 
was that of making friends of all the little white boys whom I met in the street. As many of these as I could, I converted into teachers. With their kindly aid, obtained at different times and in different places, I finally succeeded in learning to read. When I was sent of errands, I always took my book with me, and by going one part of my errand quickly, I found time to get a lesson before my return. I used to also carry bread with me, enough of which was always in the house, and to which I was always welcome, for I was much better off in this regard than many of the poor white children in our neighborhood. This bread I used to bestow upon the hungry little urchins, who in return would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge. So he then goes on to explain how he was living in this estate and learned how to read. And as he became, um, he became more knowledgeable, he got wiser. But as he learned more about his situation and, and could eloquently explain what was going on, he got even more depressed and realized why his master had said that to not that he could do nothing with his information because he in fact only opened himself to what was actually going on. I often found myself regretting my own existence and wishing myself dead. But for the and but for the hope of being free, I have no doubt but that I should have killed myself or done something for which I should have been killed. While in this state of mind, I was eager to hear anyone speak of slavery. I was a ready listener. Every little while, I could hear something about the abolitionists. It was some time before I found what the word meant. It was always used in such connections as to make it an interesting word to me. If a slave ran away and succeeded in getting clear, or if a slave killed his master or set fire to a barn, or did anything very wrong in the mind of a slaveholder, it was spoken of as the fruit of abolition. Hearing the word in this connection very often, I set about learning what it meant. The dictionary afforded me little or no help. I found it was the act of abolishing. But then I did not know what was to be abolished. Here I was perplexed. I did not dare to ask anyone about its meaning, for I was satisfied that it was something they wanted me to know very little about. After a patient waiting, I got, I got one of our city papers containing an account of the number of petitions from the North praying for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and of the slave trade between the states. From this time, I understood the words abolition and abolitionist and always drew near when that word was spoken expecting to hear something of importance to myself and fellow slaves. The light broke in upon me by degrees. I went one day down onto the wharf of Mr. Waters and seeing two Irishmen unloading a skull of stone, I went unasked and helped them. When we had finished, one of them came to me and asked me if I were a slave. I told him I was. He asked, are you a slave for life? I told him that I was. The good Irishman seemed to be deeply affected by my statement. 
He said to the other that it was a pity so fine a little fellow as myself should be a slave for life. He said it was a shame to hold me. They both advised me to run away to the north, that I should find friends there and that I should be free. I pretended not to be interested in what they said and treated them as if I did not understand them, for I feared they might be treacherous. White men have been known to encourage slaves to escape and then to get the reward, catch them and return them to their masters. I was afraid that these seemingly good men might use me so, but I nevertheless remembered their advice. And from that time, I resolved to run away. I looked forward to a time at which it would be safe for me to escape. I was too young to think of doing so immediately. Besides, I wished to learn how to write as I might have occasion to write my own pass. I consoled myself with the hope that I should one day find a good chance. Meanwhile, I would learn to write. So uh, when you traveled uh, to and from then, uh, you know, your uh, modern day um, identification card or um, driver's license, so to speak, back then was called a pass. Uh, to simply explain. So he's getting older. Um, he's still quite young. And um, he's now been allowed basically to uh, learn a trade since he lives in the city. And he now, instead of learning farm work as he would have in a farm, he is allowed to go to and from uh, the the pier and then back and forth to learn caulking and different kinds of construction jobs, uh, especially uh, just carrying things to and from ships and off of ships onto the dock. The idea as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgin and Bailey's shipyard and frequently seeing the ship carpenters after hewing and getting a piece of timber ready for use write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked L. When a piece was starboard side, it would be marked S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be thus LF. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked SF. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately commenced copying them and a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters which I had been so fortunate as to learn and ask him to beat that. In this way, I got a good many lessons in writing, which it is quite possible I should never have gotten any other way. During this time, my copy book was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these, I learned mainly how to write. I then commenced and continued copying the italics in Webster's spelling book until I could make them all without looking on the book. By this time, my little master Thomas had gone to school and learned how to write 
and had written over a number of copy books that must have been his master's son. These had been brought home and shown to some of our near neighbors and then laid aside. My mistress used to go to class meeting at the Wilk Street meeting house every Monday afternoon and leave me to take care of the house. When left, I used to spend the time in writing in the spaces left in Master Thomas's copy book, copying what he had written. I continued to do this until I could write a hand very similar to that of Master Thomas. Thus, after a long, tedious effort for years, I finally succeeded in learning how to write. Wow. Yeah. In a very short time, I went to live at Baltimore. My old master's youngest son, Richard, died. And in about three years and six months after his death, my old master, Captain Anthony, died, leaving only his son, Andrew, and daughter, Lucretia, to share his estate. He died while on a visit to see his daughter at Hillsboro. Cut off unexpectedly, he left no will as to the disposal of his property. It was therefore necessary to have a valuation of the property that it might be equally divided between the children. I was immediately sent for to be valued with the other property. Here again, my feelings rose up in detestation of slavery. I had now a new conception of my degraded condition. Prior to this, I had become, if not insensible to my lot, at least partly so. I left Baltimore with a young heart overborne with sadness and a soul full of apprehension. I took passage with Captain Rowe in the Schooner Wildcat, and after a sail of about 24 hours, I found myself near the place of my birth. I had now been absent from it almost, if not quite, five years. I, however, remembered the place very well. I was about five years old when I left it to go and live with my old master on Colonel Lloyd's plantation. So that I was now between 10 and 11 years old. We were all ranked together at the valuation. Men and women, old and young, married and single, were ranked with horses, sheep, and swine. There, there were horses and men, cattle and women, pigs and children, all holding the same rank in the scale of being, and were all subjected to the same narrow examination. After the valuation then came the division. I have no language to express the high excitement and deep anxiety which were felt among us poor slaves during this time. Our fate for life was now to be decided. We had no more voice in that decision than the brutes among whom we were ranked. A single word from the white men was enough against all our wishes, prayers, and entreaties to sunder forever the dearest friends, dearest kindred, and strongest ties known to human beings. In addition to the pain of separation, there was the horrid dread of falling into the hands of Master Andrew. He was known to us all as being a most cruel wretch, a common drunkard who had, by his reckless mismanagement and profligate dis dissipation, already wasted a large portion of his father's property. 
to be a profligate means to uh, just have no care for anything and waste uh, whatever. We all felt that we might as well be sold at once to the Georgia traders as to pass into his hands, for we knew that that would be our most inevitable condition, a condition held by us all in utmost horror and dread. I suffered more anxiety than most of my fellow slaves. I had known what it was to be kindly treated. They had known nothing of the kind. They had seen little or nothing of the world. They were in very deed men and women of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Their backs had been made familiar with the bloody lash so that they had become callous. Mine was yet tender. For a while at Baltimore, I got few whippings and few slaves could boast of a kinder master and mistress, mistress than myself. And the thought of passing out of their hands into those of Master Andrew, a man who, but a few days before, to give me a sample of his bloody disposition, took my little brother by the throat, threw him on the ground, and with the heel of his boot, stamped upon his head till the blood gushed from his nose and ears was well calculated to make me anxious as to my fate. After he committed this savage outrage upon my brother, he turned to me and said that was the way he meant to serve me one of these days. Thanks to a kind providence, I fell to the portion of Miss Lucretia, Lucretia and was sent immediately back to Baltimore to live again in the family of Master Hugh. Their joy at my return equaled their sorrow at my departure. It was a glad day to me. I had escaped a worse fate than lion's jaws. I was absent from Baltimore for the purpose of valuation and division just about one month. Very soon after my return to Baltimore, my mistress Lucretia died, leaving her husband and one child, Amanda, and in a very short time after her death, her brother, Master Andrew, died. Now, all of the property of my old master, slaves included, was in the hands of strangers. Strangers who had had nothing to do with accumulating it. Not a slave was left free. So, uh, it should be noted here that if your master had died um, and his children died, um, which wasn't uncommon back then, that you could be freed and have the option to uh, go about your way as best as you could. So um, unfortunately at that moment, there was no slave that was allowed to be free. All remained slaves from the youngest to the oldest. If any one thing in my experience more than in any other served to deepen my conviction of the infernal character of slavery and to fill me with unutterable loathing of slaveholders, it was their base ingratitude to my poor old grandmother. She had served my old master faithfully from youth to old age. She had been the source of all his wealth. She had peopled his plantation with slaves. She had become a great grandmother in his service. She had rocked him in infancy, infancy, attended him in childhood, and served him through life, and at his death, wiped from his icy brow, the cold death swept and closed his eyes forever. She was nevertheless left a slave, a slave for life, 
a slave in the hands of strangers, and in their hands she saw her children, her grandchildren, and her great-grandchildren, divided like so many sheep without being gratified with the small privilege of a single word as to their or her own destiny. And to the cap the climax, to cap the climax of their base ingratitude and fiendish barbarity, my, my grandmother, who was now very old, having outlived my old master and all his children, having seen the beginning and end of all of them, and her present owners finding she was of but little value, her frame already racked with the pains of old age and complete helplessness, fast stealing over her once active limbs, they took her to the woods, built her a little hut, put up a little mud chimney, and then made her welcome to the privilege of supporting herself there in perfect loneliness, virtually turning her out to die. I sailed from Baltimore for St. Michael's in the sloop Amanda, Captain Edward Dodson. On my passage, I paid particular attention to the direction which the steamboats took to go to Philadelphia. I found instead of going down on reaching North Point, they went up the bay in a northeasterly direction. I deemed this knowledge of the utmost importance. My determination to run away was again revived. I resolved to wait only so long as the offering of a favorable opportunity. When that came, I was determined to be off. I have now reached a period of my life when I can give dates. I left Baltimore and went to live with Master Thomas Ald at St. Michael's in March 1832. It was now more than seven years since I lived with him in the family of my old master on Colonel Lloyd's plantation. We, of course, were now almost entire strangers to each other. He was, to me, a new master, and I him, a new slave. I was ignorant of his temper and disposition. He was equally so of mine. A very short time, however, brought us into full acquaintance with each other. I was made acquainted with his wife, not less than with himself. He explains that he has to return to a farm, um, having been switched out of hands a few times now, and instead of the city, he would be um, trained now that he's getting older to work, uh, to do heavy labor. Um, and he is given, his master gives him to what was called a slave breaker back, uh, back then, uh, to a man named Mr. Covey. And basically this Covey took, um, took slaves who were new to the field and uh, made their life unbearable as if it was at any point bearable before. And he was um, basically like a rancher in today's world who would break in a horse. Uh, so he broke in slaves. 
I left Master Thomas's house and went to live with Mr. Covey on the 1st of January, 1833. I was now, for the first time in my, my life, a field hand. In my new employment, I found myself even more awkward than a country boy appeared to be in a large city. I had been at my new home but one week before Covey gave me a very severe whipping, cutting my back, causing the blood to run, and raising ridges on my flesh as large as my little finger. The details of, his, of this affair are as follows. So he tells a long, quite a long story of, of uh, how he just messed up something in the field because he didn't know what he was doing. and was uh, punished because of it. <clears throat> but moving on, Mr. Covey's forte consisted in his power to deceive. His life was devoted to planning and perpetrating the grossest deceptions. Everything he possessed in the shape of learning or religion, he made conform to his disposition to deceive. He seemed to think himself equally equal to deceiving the Almighty. He would make a short prayer in the morning and a long prayer at night. And strange as it may seem, few men would at times appear more devotional than he. The exercises of his family devotions were always commenced with singing. And as he was a very poor singer himself, the duty of raising the hymn generally came upon me. He would read his hymn and nod at me to commence. I would at times do so, at others I would not. My non-compliance would almost always produce much confusion. To show himself independent of me, he would start and stagger through with his hymn in the most discordant manner. So he basically was a, was a, was a fool and uh, an arrogant, you know, narcissistic, um, cruel person. If at any one time of my life more than another, I was made to drink the bitterest dregs of slavery. That time was during the first six months of my stay with Mr. Covey. We were worked in all weathers. It was never too hot or too cold. It could never rain, blow, hail, or snow too hard for us to work in the field. Work, work, work was scarcely more the order of the day than of the night. Longest days were too short for him, and the shortest nights too long. I was somewhat unmanageable when I first went there, but a few months of this discipline tamed me. Mr. Covey succeeded in breaking me. I was broken in body, soul, and spirit. My natural elasticity was crushed. My intellect languished. The disposition to read departed. The cheerful spark that lingered about my eye died. The dark night of slavery closed in upon me. And behold, a man transformed into a brute. Sunday was my only leisure time. I spent this in a sort of beast-like stupor between sleep and wake under some large tree. At times I would rise up. A flash of energetic freedom would dart through my soul, accompanied with a faint beam of hope that flickered for a moment and then vanished. I sank down again, mourning over my wretched condition. I was sometimes prompted to take my life and that of Covey, but was prevented by a combination of hope and fear. My sufferings on the plantation 
seem now like a dream rather than a stern reality. So uh, one day he was kind of looking up at the Chesapeake Bay and saw ships going out to sea. And he sort of had a moment of divine clarity and uh, a spark of, of freedom uh, that didn't go away kind of got into him. And he started to, he started to say out loud, I am fast in my chains and am a slave. You move merrily before the gentle gale and I sadly before the bloody whip. You are freedom's swift winged angels that fly around the world. I am confined in bands of iron. Oh, that I were free. Oh, that I were on one of your gallant decks, talking to the ship, and under your protected, protecting wing. Betwixt me and you, the turbid waters roll. Go on, go on. Oh, that I could also go. Could I but swim if I could fly? Why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh God, save me. Deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? I will run away. I will not stand it. Get caught or get clear. I will try it. I had, a, I had as well die with egg as the fever. I have only one life to lose. I had as well be killed running as die standing. Only think of it. 100 miles straight north and I am free. Try it? Yes. God helping me, I will. It cannot be that I shall live and die a slave. I will take to the water. This very bay shall yet bear me into freedom. So he, that was just some sort of poem that he shouted out in reverie from seeing this one day while sitting under a tree and begins to explain, the steamboats steered in a northeast course from North Point. I will do the same. And when I get to the head of the bay, I will turn my canoe adrift and walk straight through Delaware into Pennsylvania. When I get there, I shall not be required to have a pass. I can travel without being disturbed. Let but the first opportunity offer and come what will, I am off. Meanwhile, I will try to bear up under the yoke. I am not the only slave in the world. Why should I fret? I can bear as much as any of them. Besides, I am but a boy, and all boys are bound to someone. It may be that misery in slavery will only increase my happiness when I get free. There is a better day coming. I have already intimated that my condition was much worse during the first six months of my stay at Mr. Covey's than in the last six. The circumstances leading to the change in Mr. Covey's course toward me formed an epoch in my humble history. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. 
on one of the hottest days of the month of August, 1833, Bill Smith, William Hughes, a slave named Eli, and myself were engaged in fanning wheat. Hughes was clearing the fanned wheat from before the fan. Eli was turning, Smith was feeding, and I was carrying wheat to the fan. The work was simple, requiring strength rather than intellect. Yet, to one entirely unused to some such work, it came very hard. About three o'clock of that day, I broke down. My strength failed me, and I was seized with a violent aching of the head, attended with extreme dizziness. I trembled in every limb. Finding what was coming, I nerved myself up, feeling it would never do to stop work. I stood as long as I could stagger to the hopper with grain. When I could stand no longer, I fell and felt as if held down by an immense weight. The fan, of course, stopped. Everyone had his own work to do, and no one could do the work of the other and have his own go on at the same time. Mr. Covey was at the house about 100 yards from the treading yard where we were fanning. On hearing the fan stop, he left immediately and came to the spot where we were. He hastily inquired what the matter was. Bill answered that I was sick and there was no one to bring wheat to the fan. I had by this time crawled away under the side of the post and rail fence by which the yard was enclosed, hoping to find relief by getting out of the sun. He then asked where I was. He was told by one of the hands and he came to the spot and after looking at me a while, asked me what was the matter. I told him as well as I could for I could scarcely had strength to speak. He then gave me a savage kick in the side and told me to get up. I tried to do so but fell back in the attempt. He gave me another kick and again told me to rise. I again tried and succeeded in gaining my feet, but stooping to get the tub with which I was feeding the fan, I again staggered and fell. While down in this situation, Mr. Covey took up the hickory slap with which Hughes had been striking off the half bushel measure, and with it gave me a heavy blow to the head, making a large wound, and the blood ran freely. And he told me to get up. I made no effort to comply, having now made up my mind to let him do his worst. In a short time after receiving this blow, my head got better. Mr. Covey had now left me to my fate. At this moment, I resolved for the first time to go to my master, enter a complaint, and ask for his protection. In order to do this, I must that afternoon walk seven miles, and this under these circumstances with truly a severe was truly a severe undertaking. I was exceedingly feeble, made so as much by the kicks and blows with which I received as by the severe fit of sickness to which I had just been subjected. I, however, watched my chance while Covey was looking in an opposite direction and started for St. Michael's. Uh, St. Michael's is, is where his, his master was. So he went to his master basically and uh, complained. His master was upset, but, and this is, a, this is a huge act of rebellion for a slave to actually have enough um, uh, self-esteem, I guess, to, to go to their master. Because the master can give you a way to a, an employee. It's like having a, uh, um, 
a trade job and, and you can be um, like a journeyman electrician can be given a job uh, and he works for a company, but he, he's sent off to a job and doesn't work for the company who's needing him to do the job. A slave can have a master that, you know, pimps him out basically to a, to another place, another farm and is, is paid their wages basically. Um, and that was basically the idea of slavery. So his master told him to go back and that he wouldn't, that Mr. Covey wouldn't uh, kill him. He was afraid that he was going to kill him. And he said that he's not going to do that. He thought he was a good man and he needed him. And, um, he owed him, he owed his master money. Mr. Covey owed uh, Frederick Douglass's master money. So he wasn't going to do anything. So he went back, um, but on the way back, ran into a friend named Sandy. That night, uh, I fell in with Sandy Jenkins, a slave with whom I was somewhat acquainted. So on his way back, he slept over at uh, his friend's house. Sandy had a free wife who lived about four miles from Mr. Covey's and it being Saturday, he was on his way to see her. I told him my circumstances and he very kindly invited me to go home with him. I went home with him and talked this whole matter over and got his advice as to what course it was best for me to pursue. I found Sandy an old advisor. He told me with great solemnity, solemnity, I found Sandy an old advisor. He told me with great solemnity, I must go back to Covey, but that before I went, I must go with him into another part of the woods where there was a certain route, which if I would take some of it with me, carrying it always on my right side would render it impossible for Mr. Covey or any other white man to whip me. He said he carried it for years, and since he had done so, he had never received a blow and never expected to while he carried it. I at first rejected the idea that the simple carrying of a root in my pocket would have any such effect as he had said and was not disposed to take it. But he impressed the necessity with much earnestness, telling me it could do no harm if it did no good. To please him, I at length took the root and according to his direction, carried it upon my right side. This was Sunday morning. I immediately started off for home, and upon entering the yard gate, out came Mr. Covey on his way to meeting. He spoke to me very kindly, bade me drive the pigs from a lot nearby, and passed onwards to church. Now, this singular conduct of Mr. Covey really made me begin to think that there was something in the route which Sandy had given me and it had been on any other day than Sunday, had it been on any other day than Sunday, I could have attributed the conduct to no other cause than the influence of that root. And, and as it was, I was half inclined to think the root to be something more than I at first had taken it to be. All went well till Monday morning. On this morning, the virtue of the root was fully tested. Long before daylight, I was called to go and rub curry Rub, curry, and feed the horses. I obeyed and was glad to obey. But whilst thus engaged, whilst in the act of throwing down some blades from the loft, 
Mr. Covey entered the stable with a long rope. And just as I was half out of the loft, he caught hold of my legs and was about tying me. As soon as I found what he was up to, I gave a sudden spring, and as I did so, he holding my, to my legs, I was brought sprawling to the stable floor. So Covey just pulls him down off of the second floor of the stable with a rope and by grabbing his legs and pulling them out from under him. Mr. Covey seemed now to think he had me and could do what he pleased. But at this moment, from whence came the spirit I don't know, I resolved to fight. And suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat. And as I did so, I rose. He held on to me and I to him. My resistance was so entirely unexpected that Covey seemed taken aback. He trembled like a leaf. This gave me assurance, and I held him uneasy, causing the blood to run where I touched him with the ends of my fingers. Mr. Covey soon called out to Hughes for help. Hughes came, and while Covey held me, attempted to tie my right hand. While he was in the act of doing so, I watched my chance and gave him a heavy kick close under the ribs. This kick fairly sickened Hughes so that he left me in the hands of Mr. Covey. This kick had the effect of not only weakening Hughes, but Covey also. When he saw Hughes bending over with pain, his courage quailed. He asked me if I meant to persist in my resistance. I told him I did, come what might, that he had used me like a brute for six months and that I was determined to be used no longer. With that, he strove to drag me to a stick that was lying just out of the stable door. He meant to knock me down, but just as he was leaning over to get the stick, I seized him with both hands by his collar and brought him by a sudden snatch to the ground. By this time, Bill came. Covey called upon him for assistance. Bill wanted to know what he could do. Covey said, take hold of him, take hold of him. Bill said his master hired him out to work and not to help whip me. So he left Covey and myself to fight our own battle out. Wow. We were, yeah. We were at it for nearly two hours. Covey at length let me go, puffing and blowing at a great rate, saying that if I had not resisted, he would not have whipped me half as much. The truth was that he had not whipped me at all. I considered him as getting entirely the worst end of the bargain, for he had drawn no blood from me, but I from him. The whole six months afterwards, I, that I spent with Mr. Covey, he never laid the weight of his finger upon me in anger. He would occasionally say he didn't want to get a hold of me again. No, I thought, you need not, for you will come off worse than you did before. So, and he goes on to say, this battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. It rekindled the few expiring embers of freedom and revived me with a sense of my own manhood. So he, he did something that was, uh, uh, he could have been killed for if a slave had uh, raised their hand against their master or someone, or a white person in general, um, they, they could have been killed for that. That was a crime. Um, and he called his bluff and he later realized that 
Mr. Covey had a perfect record for breaking slaves. And so if, if he was publicly whipped or any mention of it was brought about to anyone that a slave had fought him for two hours and no one else that he hired, uh, two other white men that he hired to be, to be hands on the farm um, didn't help either, he would have been made a fool. So he basically called his bluff and um, Covey could keep his perfect record and uh, he would hold his respect in Covey and, and Covey feared him for the rest, for the rest of the, the year uh, that he worked with him. So he, I wanted to quickly use this, uh, uh, explain this part and read it. Um, this is an interesting part of slavery that um, uh, Douglas explains as, uh, you know, another way that um, these prisoners and these slaves were, were kept uh, dumb and kept um, inside a world of uh, illusion. Um, and basically it was around the holidays uh, for Christmas and the new year. And they were given, uh, um, slaves were given six days, I want to say, um, according to Frederick Douglass, for a, a week off, basically, six or seven days. And they would keep them drunk, basically, um, so that during their time off, they didn't feel that they, they weren't able to coherently realize their own sense of, of freedom and liberty. So I'll see if, um, I'll see if Douglas, uh, if I found the right part. My term of actual service to Edward Covey ended on Christmas day, 1833. The days between Christmas and new year's day are allowed as holidays. And accordingly, we were not required to perform any labor more than to feed and take care of the stock. This time we regarded as our own, but by the grace of our masters. And we were therefore used or abused it nearly as we pleased. Those of us who had families at a distance were generally allowed to spend the whole six days in their society. This time, however, was spent in various ways. The staid, sober, thinking, and industrious ones of our number would employ themselves in making corn brooms, mats, horse collars, and baskets, and another class of us would spend the time in hunting possums, hares, and coons. But by far the larger part engaged in such sports and merriments as playing ball, wrestling, running foot races, fiddling, dancing, and drinking whiskey. And this latter mode of spending the time was by far the most agreeable to the feelings of our masters. A slave who would work during the holidays was considered by our masters as scarcely deserving them. He was regarded as one who rejected the favor of his master. It was deemed a disgrace not to get drunk, and he was regarded as lazy, who had not provided himself with the necessary means during the year to get whiskey enough to last him through Christmas. 
From what I know of the effect of these holidays upon the slave, I believe them to be among the most effective means in the hands of the slaveholder in keeping down the spirit of insurrection. Were the slaveholders at once to abandon this practice, I have not the slightest doubt it would lead to an immediate insurrection among the slaves. These holidays serve as conductors or safety valves to carry off the rebellious spirit of enslaved humanity. But for these, the slave would be forced up to the wildest desperation and woe betide the slaveholder the day he ventures to remove or hinder the operation of those conductors. I warn him that in such an event, a spirit will go forth in their midst more to be dreaded than the most appalling earthquake. So in other words, the day they realize that they're being drugged almost is the day that the the slaveholder loses his slaves and woe betide the slaveholder. The holidays are part and parcel of the gross fraud, wrong, and inhumanity of slavery. They are professedly a custom established by the benevolence of the slaveholders, but I undertake to say it is the result of selfishness and one of the grossest frauds committed upon the downtrodden slave. They do not give the slaves this time because they would like to have their work during its continuance, but because they know it would be unsafe to deprive them of it. This will be seen by the fact that the slaveholders like to have their slaves spend those days just in such a manner as to make them as glad of their ending as of their beginning. Their object seems to be to discuss the slaves with freedom by plunging them into the lowest depths of dissipation. For instance, the slaveholders not only like to see the slave drink of his own accord, but will adopt various plans to make him drunk. One plan being to make bets on their slaves as to who can drink the most whiskey without getting drunk. And in this way, they succeed in getting whole multitudes to drink to excess. Thus, when the slave asks for virtuous freedom, the cunning slaveholder, knowing his ignorance, cheats him with a dose of vicious dissipation, artfully labeled with the name of liberty. The most of us used to drink it down when the result was just what might be supposed. Many of us were led to think that there was little to choose between liberty and slavery. We felt, and very properly, that we had almost well be slaves to man as to rum. So when the holidays ended, we staggered up from the filth of our wallowing, took a long breath, and marched to the field, feeling, upon the whole, rather glad to go from what our master had deceived us into a belief was freedom back to the arms of slavery. I have said that this mode of treatment is part of the whole system of fraud and inhumanity of slavery, and it is so. The mode here adopted to discuss the slave with freedom by allowing him to see only the abuse of it is carried out in other things. For instance, a slave loves molasses. He steals some. His master, in many cases, goes off to town and buys a large quantity. He returns, takes his whip, and commands the slave to eat the molasses until the poor fellow is made sick at the very mention of it. 
So at this point, the uh, new year has begun, 1833, and uh, Frederick Douglass is finished with his year of um, uh, trials and being broken in to working on a, a farm and in the field from this covey and has to go uh, work for someone named Mr. William Freeland. Uh, three miles away from St. Michael's where his master lives. Um, and Mr. Freeland is um, not that bad. He's, he has a small farm. He tries to not bother his slaves or he does, does, doesn't seem to whip, whip them that much. And uh, he's a little bit more uh, religious and he's considered a Southern gentleman. Uh, he had another person on his farm, Mr. Hopkins, who was uh, cruel and often beat the slaves for no reason at all. So like this, they go back and forth to these, these places that they're sold, sold to. Um, and each slaveholder has, a, has a, their own various demeanor. But it was at this, uh, at this time he was there for a year with Freeland and then uh, was hired again for another year. At the close of the year 1834, Mr. Freeland again hired me of my master for the year 1835. But by this time, I began to want to live upon free land as well as Mr. Freeland, and I was no longer content, therefore, to live with him or any other slaveholder. I began with the commencement of the year to prepare myself for a final struggle, which would decide my fate one way or another. My tendency was upward. I was fast approaching manhood, and year after year had passed, and I was still a slave. These thoughts roused me. I must do something. I therefore resolved that 1835 should not pass without witnessing an attempt on my part to secure my liberty, but I was not willing to cherish this determination alone. My fellow slaves were dear to me. I was anxious to have them participate with me in this, my life-giving determination. I therefore, though with great prudence, commenced early to ascertain their views and feelings in regards to their condition and to imbue their minds with thoughts of freedom. I bent myself to devising ways and means for our escape, and meanwhile strove on all fitting occasions to impress them with the gross fraud and inhumanity of slavery. I went first to Henry, next to John, then to the others. I found in them all warm hearts and noble spirits. They were ready to hear and ready to act when a feasible plan should be proposed. This is what I wanted. Our knowledge of the North did not extend farther than New York, and to go there and be forever harassed with the frightful liability of being returned to slavery, with the certainty of being treated tenfold worse than before, the thought was truly a horrible one, and one which was not easy to overcome. The case sometimes stood thus, at every gate through which we were to pass, we saw a watchman, at every ferry, a guard on every bridge a sentinel, and in every wood a patrol. 
We were hemmed in upon every side. Here were the difficulties, real or imagined, the good to be sought and the evil to be shunned. On the one hand, there stood slavery, a stern reality glaring frightfully upon us, its robes already crimsoned with the blood of millions and even now feasting itself greedily upon our own flesh. On the other hand, away back in the dim distance under the flickering light of the North Star behind some craggy hill or snow-covered mountain stood a doubtful freedom, half-frozen, beckoning us to come and share its hospitality. The plan we finally concluded upon was to get a large canoe belonging to Mr. Hamilton and upon the Saturday night previous to Easter holidays, paddle directly up Chesapeake Bay. On our arrival at the head of the bay, a distance of 70 or 80 miles from where we lived, it was our purpose to turn our canoe adrift and follow the guidance of the North Star till we got beyond the limits of Maryland. Our reason for taking the water route was that we were less liable to be suspected as runaways. We hoped to be regarded as fishermen, whereas if we should take the land route, we should be subjected to interruptions of almost every kind. Anyone having a white face and being so disposed could stop us and subject us to examination. So he used his writing skills to write them passes um, that said uh, a part of their name, who their master was, and where their master was from. And that, well, one example is, this is to certify that I, the undersigned, have given the bearer, my servant, full liberty to go to Baltimore and spend the Easter holidays, written by owner so-and-so. So, um, Frederick Douglass, teaching himself how to read, um, with the help of young children and uh, teaching himself how to write with the help of children's books, workbooks, and ship hands uh, has been able to write off these uh, passes to get them to freedom. As the time drew near for our departure, our anxiety became more and more intense. It was truly a matter of life and death. The strength of our determination was about to be fully tested. At this time, I was very active in explaining every difficulty, removing every doubt, dispelling every fear, and inspiring all with the firmness indispensable to success in our undertaking, assuring them that half was gained the instant we made the move. We had talked long enough. We were here now, ready to move. If not now, we never should be. And if we did not intend to move now, we had as well fold our arms, sit down, and acknowledge ourselves fit only to be slaves. So he's trying to convince uh, three other guys that they should make a run for it. And these, these people that he's talking to, his uh, fellow slaves, are not as educated. They, they have not undergone the same city training. They haven't... Uh, looked at books and, and thought about writing they're in a totally different um mindset and and so they're going to be f full of doubt as if like why would we leave you know and take the risk and then be killed why don't we just remain slaves and of course unfortunately um sure enough one of them uh ratted them out and 
told the the owner of the farm what the plan was and they immediately um, arrested them and took them to jail. So they split them all up and they actually, uh, without needing to hear anything from Frederick Douglass, um, knew that he was the one who uh, inspired the move in the, in the, the uh, breakout to run away and they brought the other they brought the three who whose idea it wasn't back to the the farm and they sold uh frederick douglas again and, and they could have like they could have killed him he has no idea how they didn't just kill him um and the passes that they had in their pockets uh, they ate them on the way to uh, prison, basically, because they had to. Um, they were tied to horses, and they had to walk some 15 miles behind the horse to prison. And so during the walk, they ate the passes that he wrote for them. So um, maybe that probably helped. Was his theory? So Frederick Douglass has another stroke of luck and is sold to the city again. Um, he goes back to someone named Master Hughes and begins to learn uh, more trades work, more... Um, Uh, ship work, carpentry, uh, hammering, um, just basically the, the, the second hand to uh, other workers and, and engineers uh, on ships in Baltimore. In this time, he, um, he had a, a, Mr. Hughes was uh, treating him more and more like an adult and, and less like a, like a boy. So he realized he was getting older, he was learning more things, and he eventually uh, started to actually ask his master for his own time um, and that he would make more money and he wouldn't have to live with his, Mr. Hughes in his home and he could live on his own. Because as he was going to and from uh, the ship, the ships that he was working on. And as he was learning caulking and more construction, he started to get his own work and get his own, uh, make his own invoices, uh, get payments from people. And then at the end of the week, he would just report that and, and pay Mr. Hughes. So he started to realize that um, he had a, he had a much better chance of getting free if he could just live at his own house and then he could just leave town um, instead of having to sneak out of this, this fellow's house. So in the time that he was with master Hughes, he had a few weeks uh, of working with someone named Mr. Gardner. And he actually asked Mr. Gardner for his own time and to be uh, free and pay him a wage and he wouldn't actually have to report so closely um, because Master Hughes gave him to Mr. Gardner. However, 
after a few weeks, he was late uh, for making a payment because he was away at um, a trade uh, type of school for a weekend. And he was late to giving his, his dues for the week. And all of his privileges were revoked. He had to go back to living um, with this fellow as a slave full-time again. And he tried to protest by not working, basically. So he attained some kind of injury. And after he was, uh, after he was restored to health, he continues. There, I was immediately set to caulking and very soon learned the art of using my mallet and irons. In the course of one year from the time I left Mr. Gardner's, I was able to command the highest wages given to the most experienced caulkers. I was now of some importance to my master. I was bringing home six to seven dollars per week. I sometimes brought him nine dollars. My wages were a dollar and a half. After learning how to caulk, I sought my own employment, made my own contracts, and collected the money which I earned. My pathway became much more smooth than before. My condition was now much more comfortable. When I could get no caulking to do, I did nothing. During these leisure times, those old notions about freedom would steal over me again. When in Mr. Gardner's employment, I was kept in such a perpetual whirl of excitement, I could think of nothing, scarcely but my life. And in thinking of my life, I almost forgot my liberty. I have observed this in my experience of slavery, that whenever my condition was improved, instead of its increasing my contentment, it only increased my desire to be free and set me thinking of plans to gain my freedom. I have found that to make a contented slave, it is necessary to make a thoughtless one. It is necessary to darken his moral and mental vision and, as far as possible, to annihilate the power of reason. He must be able to detect no inconsistencies in slavery. He must be made to feel that slavery is right, and he can be brought to that only when he ceases to be a man. I was now getting, as I have said, $1.50 per day. I contracted for it. I earned it. It was paid to me. It was rightfully my own. Yet upon each returning Saturday night, I was compelled to deliver every cent of that money to Master Hugh. And why? Not because he earned it, not because he had any hand in earning it, not because I owed it to him, nor because he possessed the slightest shallow of right to it, but solely because he had the power to compel me to give up. The right of the grim-visaged pirate upon the high seas is exactly the same. I now come to the part of my life during which I planned and finally succeeded in making my escape from slavery. He then goes on to explain that he cannot give complete details and he apologizes to the reader um, for, for that, for that being vague because the names and uh, ways that he got free. Remember, he, he's writing this book during slavery. He was only 27, and, and it, his, his mission had only just begun. Um, so he cannot give the names and the ways in which he did it because 
it would be he would not be able to release this publication and and he released it so that african americans could read this and and somehow uh, and whites who were who were uh, trying to help uh, you know who were abolitionists uh, to free the swaths of slaves still left in chains so he he could not give uh, very much details and uh, and apologized for a while about what that meant uh, and why why that is um and i wanted to read this because i thought it was interesting i have never approved of the very public manner in which some of our western friends have conducted what they call the underground railroad by which i think by their open declarations has been made most emphatically the upper ground railroad i honor those good men and women for their noble daring and applaud them for the willingly subjecting themselves for willingly subjecting themselves to bloody persecution by openly avowing their participation in the escape of slaves. So the Underground Railroad, of course, was a movement where slaves could go live with white people and, and slowly make their way to the north. I, however, can see very little good resulting from such a course, either to themselves or the slaves escaping. While upon the other hand, I see and feel assured that those Oakland decora declarations are a positive evil to the slaves remaining who are seeking to escape. They do nothing towards enlightening the slave, whilst they do much towards enlightening the master. They stimulate him to greater watchfulness and enhance his power to capture his slave. We owe something to the slave south of the line as well as those north of it. And in aiding the latter on their way to freedom, we should be careful to do nothing which would be likely to hinder the former from escaping slavery. I would keep the merciless slaveholder profoundly ignorant of the means of flight adopted by the slave. I would leave him to imagine himself surrounded by myriads of invisible tormentors, event ever ready to snatch him from his infernal grasp, his trembling prey. Let him be left to feel his way in the dark. Let darkness commensurate with his crime hover over him. And let him feel that at every step he takes in pursuit of the flying bondman, he is running the frightful risk of having his hot brains dashed out by an invisible agency. Let us render the tyrant no aid. Let us not hold the light by which he can trace the footprints of our flying brother. But enough of this. I will now proceed to the statement of those facts connected with my escape for which I am alone responsible and for which no one can be made to suffer but myself. So it, it, I'm, I'm ignorant of everything he's speaking about in this paragraph, but it sounds to me like the Underground Railroad, which everyone learns about when they learn about slavery, was a little too popular. and it seems as though Frederick Douglass is saying it got so popular that it was making it difficult for slaves to actually become free and to get away. Because once it became known that there was an underground railroad, um, you know, conditions tightened up to the point where um, it, it made it more difficult to be free. And he also explains, as I read, that they're not actually freeing people they're just moving them to a different place. And so when they get there, 
as he mentions a little later towards the end of the book, that um, there, there, people can still take them back to slavery, even though they got out. So imagine being kept dumb, not knowing how to read or write, and ending up in a free land. Um, oftentimes, I imagine that these people became slaves again, but just in a different area, and um, would often be taken back to the farm that which they escaped. That's, that's what I'm taking away from that last paragraph. Um, anyone is welcome to, um, you know, correct me on that. In the early part of the year 1838, I became quite restless. I could see no reason why I should, at the end of each week, pour the reward of my toil into the purse of my master. When I carried him my weekly wages, he would, after counting the money, look at me in the face with a robber-like fierceness and ask, is this all? He was satisfied with nothing less than the last cent. He would, however, when I made him six dollars, sometimes give me six cents to encourage me. It had the opposite effect. I, regard, I regarded it as a sort of admission of my right to the whole. The fact that he gave me any part of my wages was proof to my mind that he believes me entitled to the whole of them. I always felt worse for having received anything, for I feared that the giving me a few cents would ease his conscience and make him feel himself to be a pretty honorable sort of robber. My discontent grew upon me. I was ever on the lookout for means of escape and finding no direct means, I determined to try to hire my time with a view of getting money with which to make my escape. In the spring of 1838, when Master Thomas came to Baltimore to purchase his spring goods, I got an opportunity and applied him to allow me to hire my time. He refused my request and told me this was another strategy by which to escape. He told me I could go nowhere, but that he could get me and that in the event of my running away, he should spare no pains in his effort to catch me. He exhorted me to content myself and be obedient. He told me, if I would be happy, I must lay out no plans for the future. He said if I behaved myself properly, he would take care of me. Indeed, he advised me to complete thoughtlessness of the future and taught me to depend solely upon him for happiness. He seemed to see fully the pressing necessity of setting aside my intellectual nature in order to contentment in slavery. But in spite of him and in spite of myself, I continued to think and to think about the injustice of my enslavement and the means of my escape. On the third day of September, 1838, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. How I did so, what means I adopted, what directions I traveled, and by what mode of conveyance I must leave unexplained for the reasons before mentioned. The motto which I adopted when I started from slavery was this, trust no man. I saw in every white man an enemy and in almost every colored man cause for distrust. It was a most painful situation 
and to understand it, one must needs experience it or imagine himself in similar circumstances. Let him be a fugitive slave in a strange land, a land given up to be the hunting ground for slaveholders whose inhabitants are legalized kidnappers, where he is every moment subjected to the terrible liability of being seized upon by his fellow men. As the heat hideous crocodile seizes upon his prey, let him place himself in my situation without home or friends, without money or credit, wanting shelter and no one to give it, wanting bread and no money to buy it. And at the same time, let him feel that he is pursued by merciless men hunters and in total darkness as to what to do, where to go, where to stay. Perfectly helpless, both as to the means of defense and means of escape. In the midst of plenty, yet suffering the terrible gnawings of hunger, in the midst of houses, yet having no home, among fellow men, yet feeling as if in the midst of wild beasts, whose greediness to swallow up the trembling and half-famished famished fugitive is only equaled by that with which the monsters of the deep swallow up the helpless fish upon which they subsist. Let him be placed in this most trying situation, the situation in which I was placed. Then, and not till then, will he fully appreciate the hardships of and know how to sympathize with the torn, the toil-worn and whip-scarred fugitive slave. So he was free. He made it to um, a small town and started to uh, read the paper called The Liberator. Um, He was aware of people being activists and he went to meetings and um, began to speak in front of people. And it was this, um, this, this newspaper, The Liberator, that uh, led him to uh, speaking out as an activist. I had not long been a reader of The Liberator before I got a pretty correct idea of the principles, measures, and spirit of the anti-slavery reform. I took right hold of the cause. I could do but little, but what I could, I did with a joyful heart and never felt happier than when in an anti-slavery meeting. I seldom had much to say at the meetings because what I wanted to say was said so much better by others. But while attending an anti-slavery convention at Nantucket on the 11th of August, 1841, I felt strongly moved to speak. And it was at the same time much urged to do so by Mr. William Coffin a gentleman who had heard me speak in the colored people's meeting at New Bedford. It was a severe cross and I took it up reluctantly. So I just realized that we've used that term in a previous episode um, to carry your own cross. 
is to take a burden. It was a severe cross and I took it up reluctantly. The truth was I felt myself a slave and the idea of speaking to white people weighed me down. I spoke but a few moments when I felt a degree of freedom and said what I desired with considerable ease. From that time until now, I have been engaged in pleading the cause of my brethren with what success and with what devotion I leave those acquainted with my labors to decide. And that's how Frederick Douglass ends his first autobiography. And I, I, com I commend people to read that book several times and because it, it gives you perspective, just like every book about someone's str uh, struggle, but it shows the spirit, the strength of the spirit. And people today don't understand what people have gone through. It's no fault of their own except for their own clouded vision and their own blindfold. And when you read something like this, you can't morally complain about anything. And if, a, if, if Frederick Douglass, who was not allowed to hold a book and hold a newspaper, educate himself and become an author and, and a, a well-known liberator of people, of enslaved people, you know, we can all educate ourselves to, to who knows what degree, given the time and the resources that we have now. So it, it's, it's by people not educating themselves and reading and writing and learning about what once was so that we can make what's to be um, the best it can. And, and as long as we have an educated mind, we have the best opportunity. Uh, so long as people don't take that opportunity, they continue to enslave themselves in their own ignorance. And that's just a little bit from that book. I recommend reading the whole thing and not treating this as uh, good enough, but to actually reads the words, uh, read the words of, of those books from your own eyes and perceive them with your own uh, spirit. And I thank you for listening to that.